From Bluetooth-enabled cars to Internet-connected consumer health devices, the Internet of Things presents a potential treasure trove of enticing targets for hackers and an enormous source of risk for other types of security and privacy breaches. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with attorney Stephen Tepler of the law firm Abbott Law Group. Stephen is the founding co-chair of the American Bar Association's Internet of Things Committee and past co-chair of the e-discovery and digital evidence committee of the American Bar. Stephen will be discussing some of the security and privacy legal related issues involving the Internet of Things. So now, Stephen, from a privacy and security perspective, what worries you the most about the Internet of Things? From a privacy perspective, there are a few facets of concern for me, and one of them is the propagation of what is ultimately identifiable or personally identifiable data that at first blush appears not to be connected or capable of being connected with an identity. And part of that is the idea that we are, as creators of electronic information, we're putting out so many disparate data points about ourselves that eventually connecting even a few of those data points can result in a reversal of a de-identification or any type of anonymization process or protection that might be included in in these devices. Then there is an issue from the privacy perspective of the ownership issues, perhaps, if you may, of the data that is output by these devices. And again, that brings to the forefront issues of identification, perhaps, and foreign privacy invasions. So with Internet of Things, including various devices and gadgets and software, what particular items you know, under that umbrella are particularly worrisome to you in terms of the privacy and security threats that they potentially pose to consumers? Devices that typically, if misused or are defective, in the mechanical world can cause either property damage or personal injury are those of great concern to us. And as an example of that, let's just use a stove or an oven, a very four-burner range oven, either gas or electric, that can be programmed to operate remotely through your iPhone or iPad or mobile device. And this device may speak to other devices or communicate with other devices that are connected within your home. It may communicate with other devices through the vendor's uh, network for updates, upgrades, or just sending cooking information. But in part of that you know, software, that embedded software schema, you can have defects in the code that operate these devices such that a command or an instruction to cook something for an hour can turn into an instruction to cook something for 20 hours and cause damage because there may be an overheating or some sort of fire or other problem that might ensue when you keep an oven on all day, all night, four burners burning at at full speed with nothing arguably on these burners. Or cars, for instance, also have a greater and greater degree of connectivity at this point. The sensors and the chipsets and the operating code that work within these 
within these cars are legion. There are uh, dozens of these computing devices that operate the car from the brakes to your gasoline injection, your fuel injection, to your steering. And if these devices, which are going to be part of a connected regime with other cars perhaps, with a vendor or a uh, manufacturer's database, these are all subject to either defects in the software as they are devised, as they're originally created, or as they're originally programmed. They may be defective as a result of an upgrade. They may be defective as the result of a failure to upgrade, or they may be they may operate in a defective manner as a result of a of a failure to operate as intended within the intended environment. And all of these items tend to all of these factors introduce new vectors for for damage and for personal injury that didn't exist beforehand. Now, Stephen, how about within the healthcare arena? Are there any sorts of Internet of Thing devices that disturb you when it comes to patients and the sort of data that they might be transmitting to their healthcare organizations through these sorts of gadgets? The question is twofold, actually. You mentioned information that might be transferred to their healthcare provider or their insurer or the manufacturer of the device. And so you have three potential areas where information might be disseminated. And, of course, much of this information will be considered covered under HIPAA's requirements for protection against impairment, accessibility, and integrity. But these devices also don't have quality control. There's no certifiable reliability standard against which the coding of these devices are done. And so they're developed in silos. There are no gold standards for how these for how the coding of these devices can operate. And the security of these devices is also kind of questionable because they haven't been tested in the wild. They haven't been tested by security professionals who are trained to detect bugs and detect vulnerabilities and detect exploits. And then, of course, you know, there's the issue of not only the, the information that is generated output by these devices, but you know, whether or not these devices are, again, subject to a defect in which the information that's created, the information that's output, is reliable or testably reliable. And, you know, these devices, they're on a very, very fast train to becoming evidence in malpractice cases and product liability cases. And it's not only the output of these devices, but it's the actual code that creates the output in these devices because the analysis is going to be what did the code operate properly? And if the code operated properly, is the output reliable, A, as it was generated, and B, as it was ultimately stored? Was it changed? What kind of custodial protection do you have over that output to make sure that it is the output that was created at the time it was instantiated by that medical device? So, for instance, you can have the digital x-rays or digital monitoring systems pretty much are, they generate zeros and ones, they generate binaries. If these binaries aren't somehow protected from alteration throughout their life cycle, the output which records, which is a recordation of your of your bodily um, metrics, then how can you, um, how can you rely on them to a great extent in trial or in further diagnoses?
they'd call, if there, there are definitely issues that have to be addressed that as yet have not been. So, Stephen, with that said, what's your advice to healthcare organizations and even their vendors or their business associates when it comes to protecting the integrity and also patient privacy and security as it relates to these sorts of devices? The first thing I would do would be to hire or engage internally, if you have one, or externally, engage a security consultant who is familiar with these issues and do a top-down analysis of the code development, of the code architecture, perhaps do testing in the wild, perhaps engage a pen tester or a vulnerability vulnerability detection expert, of which there are more than a few. We certainly hire them when, when we are looking at devices and we need to see whether or not these devices have problems either because of latent defects in the code or, or actually just defects in the code, and, and then develop a policy by which organizations can architect not only the code, but architect the code in real harmony with the development, with the actual physical production of the device itself, and, and look at issues such as, will this code need to be updated? How do we provision for it? Will this code need to be sunsetted, i.e., we know that this device won't last more than three years in the wild, so what we're going to do is we're going to set it so that three years, in three years, the code will cease to operate, the device will cease to operate, and so you'll have a built-in mechanism for ensuring that there won't be these orphan devices which can cause harm down the line because it was either ignored or too expensive or not considered in a full-fledged assessment of how this device, how these devices will operate over the period of their intended useful life. So, Stephen, from a legal perspective, do you think there is a need for new legislation, new regulations as they pertain to the privacy and cybersecurity of the Internet of Things, and why? This is a very, very, very hotly contested issue. Um, on the one hand, we were at a um, at an IoT National Institute sponsored by their American Bar Association last month, one of the co-chairs of that committee. And it was clear from representatives from the regulatory agencies who presented that putting out regulations or laws typically wind up being so outdated by the time they come to the table, by the time they become effective, that they're more of a, um, they're not even obsolete. They actually operate um, possibly against stakeholders' interests. And so what came of this uh, discussion was that it's probably going to wind up being a self-regulated, an industry self-regulation tempered by lawsuits which will help develop the legal framework by which by which these devices should be developed and and managed over their lifespan. And finally, Stephen, when it comes to either large notable data breaches or even lawsuits so far pertaining to the Internet of Things, is there anything that comes to mind that's happened so far? We are counsel for a plaintiff in a lawsuit against a toy manufacturer who's come out with a with a connected doll, with an, a doll that basically is an IoT device. The child basically speaks to the doll after the parents register the doll on the net. The child's voice is recorded and then sent back to an artificial intelligence back-end server, um, which then chunks the, um, the, the words and 
formulates and responds back with it, with what it considers to be an appropriate response. The Dulles had some security issues, which we've been told have been addressed, but the the recordings of the voice of the children are retained for at least two years by the tech company who runs the technology and created the technology inside the doll. And even with a, a miles-long terms of service, which contain disclaimers and waivers and arbitration clauses and class waivers, there are still um, non-purchasing users can still use that doll, i.e. playmates of the doll can use it, and their recording, their voices are being recorded. In Illinois, for instance, the unconsented to recording of a biometric is violation of a uh, of an Illinois statute and will need and actually have statutory damages attached to it. But also, these are these recordings are mined. The information on these recordings are mined. The demographics, all of this, becomes aggregated into big data, which is then used to push, arguably, to push advertising and content. And ultimately. This information, what kind of colors do you like, where are you, what kind of, what do you do in this sort of weather, et cetera, et cetera, the kinds of questions that can be asked of these children because the, or the kind of questions that children will ask will not only have personal information included in them, but will eventually be able to not only have that information point back to the child, arguably, with enough, enough data points, but the actual voice biometric can also be used in the future and recorded to match up with the adult because that signature does not change over the lifespan of the of the individual. So we're we're currently in litigation on that and there will be other matters as well. This is still at the very, very beginning stages of development on the legal forefront. Thanks, Stephen. I've been speaking to Stephen Tepler. I'm Marianne Kolbasak McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.